Hi, my name is Carol Stanley, and I had the distinct pleasure of editing Jerry Viss's book, his memoir, The First in a Trilogy. And I published his book in association with Rare Bird Books, and it's been a, just a wonderful experience. Jerry is not only an author, he's an artist, a sculptor, and a master restorationist of homes in the Hudson Valley and in Maine. Jerry, you came to writing fairly late. How did you happen to write your memoir? Well, it's I kind of backed into it, uh, which is strange. I, I had no idea I was going to start writing to the degree I am, which is constant now. Um, I told stories to my children as they were growing up, stories I made up and stories that uh, were, were from my own childhood. And as I got older, my son uh, said to me, you know, you, you should really write down these stories so that they can be passed on to your grandchildren. And so I said, well, I, I guess so. All right. So he went out and he bought me a, an Apple laptop. And I said, well, what do I do with this? You know, I was so illiterate about the, the whole process. So he said, well, you know, just work at it and you'll, you'll figure it out. So I started writing. And what had happened is I had written some of the stories down by hand years ago because my wife had asked me to, to, to write them down too. But they, they got lost in the attic somehow. Uh, so I found, I found those and, um, and my son reminded me of something. So I started writing. And before I knew it, I was totally addicted to the process. It was really interesting. And I found that writing a memoir, and it's something at this point I've really tried to encourage other people to do. Writing a memoir is really a wonderful journey, uh, because, uh, especially if you're writing about your childhood, because you don't understand things, of course, as a child. And the, and the adults aren't very forthcoming about, about what's really going on between uh, their lives and, and, and inadvertently how it affects you. So as I started to write the memoir, I started to understand some of the curious absences of information that existed in, in, the, in uh, my memory and, and, how the, and how those adults functioned. And then it just it grew and grew, and it's gotten to the point where I, I can no longer stop writing. And so now I'm an artist. I mean, I was trained as an artist. I, um, I, I have a master's degree in fine art from Rutgers University, and I taught art in college level and never had any intention of writing. And now it's become uh, probably half of my time doing something creative is now split between painting, sculpture, and writing. Well, you must have brought some of the discipline that you bring to your art, to your writing, because you are incredibly prolific and quick in a way that People who have been writing all their lives are not. So it's really interesting. You, I guess you were meant to be a writer as well as an artist. So the book is called Patterson Boy. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about that. You grew up in Patterson. I grew up in Patterson. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I was, I'm a product of a, of a blue collar family. Everybody in my family. Uh, and Patterson was known at one point as a Silk City. Uh, because it manufactured silk yard goods, which were then sent to New York City and and uh, was used in the garment district to make all the various products that they they did in the in the in the in the uh, garment uh, industry in New York. So a lot of my family worked in those factories um, and then had small 
you know, mom and pop kinds of stores. So, uh, you know, I was, uh, and I grew up in Patterson and, you know, as can happen for many people, uh, as you grow older, you, you, you remember fondly your, your time in that town where you grew up. And I have very great fond memories of Patterson and still go there. I live about a hundred miles away from there now. And <laughs> occasionally I drive down there and, and, um, go to this place that sells very unenlightened food, but which I love called Libby's lunch where they make things called Texas wieners. So I do this maybe once every five or six weeks, but Patterson was interesting because it was a mill town, a very affluent, successful mill town. And it was established um, in the 18th century. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was, was, uh, contributed to that process because there was a huge waterfall there, which of course still is there. And the, the water was used to power the mills. And that went on until the beginning of the 20th century when newer technology started coming in and um, um, the, the, there was all kinds of strikes. And my grandparents and a lot of my relatives were involved in those strikes about 1913. Um, and it was the beginning of the end, really, for the for the the mill system because they were they were trying to unionize. There were socialists that came in to try and organize the workers, and a lot of my family finally um, got really tired of the whole process and found other ways to make a living. But it was all blue collar, and um, that and that's pretty much my experience with with Patterson. So. Tell us a little bit about some of the adults in your life that are, were so mysterious at the time. Your family and uh, your your grandparents, your parents, your uncle. You know, um, the, the interesting thing that I learned or I, I became aware of was the fact that everybody had their own agenda for me. Uh, I was an I was an only child. Uh, my grandparents had had a certain kind of scheme that they thought I should conform to, and I think this is typical of of, of most children that the adults in their life have an idea of what should be what their life should be about. And so I had an uncle who was who was kind of a shady character and made money in a very maybe not ethical way, who wanted me to uh, to. Um, kind of take care of him when he got older and he'd give me his money and my my grandparents who who wanted me to swear on the bible that i would never join the church that my father had decided to join and my father who um uh who was a functional alcoholic but nearly killed himself with alcohol got scared to death and then became a fundamentalist christian about when i was 11 years old and 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 so none of none of this stuff um kind of made sense to me at the time in, in, a, in a way, that, in an adult kind of conscious way. But it did perform the, the possibility of me becoming aware of how the adult world didn't work. And, I mean, there was, I had a communist uncle who was probably the most influential. He was my first mentor. I was lucky in that I had two really strong, helpful people in my life. One was my uncle, who was a communist, and, and another was a, my painting teacher in college. But this book is, is about the first 12 or 13 years of my life, and that, that uncle, my uncle Phil, really played an important part in my, in my development as, a, as an aware human being. Would you read just a very brief description of your uncle from the book? 
Well, um, I, I, yeah, I have a, I have a, a passage here that I, I thought to, that might be interesting. Um, yes. Hey, first of all, I'd like to give you a little bit of background about my uncle. My Please uncle, do. Yeah, he was the only one in my on my mother's side of the family that had gone to college, and he was a civil and a, and a structural engineer, and he was a, a devout card-carrying communist, and he showed me that card at one point, because I asked him, I said, are you really a communist? This was in the early 50s, of course, when it wasn't a really good idea to say you were a communist, and he, he, he did. He had a card that, that said he was a member of the Com American Communist Party. So, but but he he took an interest in me and wanted to um, wanted to kind of influence about how I should obtain an education and how I should approach my life. And I remember at one point my father wanted to send me to a uh, uh, religious boarding school in high school. And my uncle tried to get the notion across to him that that education should be not about what to think, but about how to think. And so here's the, here's the passage, a little passage. Uncle Phil Whitehead taught me the importance of critical thinking, not what to think, though he did try inadvertently from time to time. He was, after all, too unplugged from day-to-day -day reality to be a role model. Yet I was sure his understanding of world dynamics and how our government and corporations collude was accurate. He just never convinced me that his alternative to these conditions were workable. I asked him once, when I was much older, what's the difference between a corporation that builds a refrigerator that falls apart in five years or a planned economy that turns out a mediocre refrigerator that only lasts five years? I could read his mind as he looked at me and smart-ass kid, he was thinking. It was mostly his fault, and I loved him for it. That's a very charming and, and lovely, as is the whole book. You know, you took me to Patterson, and we looked around, and the Patterson that you knew is pretty much gone. Yes, it but is. It was, but for you, it was... It was home, and it was before Patterson fell into decline. And tell us a little bit about your your mother, your father, and your grandparents. Well, my my both my parents were Dutch, and and Patterson, of course, of course, New, New, New Jersey and New York were pretty much, were initially a Dutch a Dutch colony. Uh, taken over by the English, but a, a lot of the people in my life were Dutch. My father's family immigrated from Holland in 1905, and my mother's family uh, originally came to um, the New World in the 1630s, and so, and strangely enough, had remained mostly Dutch uh, through marriage up until the point when they both met and married. Um, my my father's family uh, was strange in that I many times I asked all the various aunts and uncles, uh, brothers and sisters of my father, why did the family immigrate from Holland in 1905? And I got five or six different versions of why they came to America, and no one ever really made any of them uh, convincing to me. They were all they all just uh, disagreed with each other so profoundly. Um, on my mother's side of the family. Um, they were, they had been here a long time and my grandmother and both my grandfather, uh, went, 
went to work in the silk mills as weavers or start. They didn't start as weavers. They became weavers um, in the early 20th century. And my grandmother was 12 years old when her father came into her classroom and and said, called his daughter and said, uh, you've had enough schooling. I'm taking you out of here. The family needs money. Uh, you're going to work. And he took her down to one of the mills and got her a job. And uh, she eventually, you know, uh, she was just a schlepper at that point. She would just um, get materials for the weavers to use in, in one of these huge three-story mills that were neither heated nor air-conditioned nor even electrically lit. Just awful working conditions, really. Um, many of them still run by water, water wheels. But she went to work in them and then eventually became a weaver. And then the strikes came along. And it, life got really hard because they were out of work and, and the, the, uh, the police were arresting people and the, and the mill owners had hired uh, goons to, to beat up the, the strikers. At that point, decided they would get married and, and open up a business. And, and with some help from the family, they eventually were able to do that. So that's a little bit about where both my families both sides of my family were um, coming up into the into the depression. You had some really interesting adventures during your boyhood. Um, I'd like to hear about a little bit about your snowfort war. Oh. Well, you know, one of the things that you become aware of in this age of uh, cell phones, you know, and, and iPads and all this stuff is, is how plugged in to that we are and how unconnected we are to each other. One of the treasures of growing up in that period, although the times were not easy, the economy was terrible for, for many people. Uh, we didn't have a lot of the amenities that people insist on having in their lives today. But at that time, as a child, you were, and this was true of all my friends too, we had a lot of freedom. We'd, get, we'd come home from school and change out of our school clothes into our play clothes and out we'd go. And nobody was there to supervise us. There was no such thing as Little League. There was no such thing as helicopter parents. You just went out the door and did whatever you felt like doing. And so that kind of freedom permeated a lot of what I experienced. And the Snowfort War story is one of those situations. Um, we had a huge snowstorm um, sometime after Christmas, around New Year's Eve, I think it was, yes. And, um, it, you know, at that time, nobody plowed the streets until, until it stopped snowing. So we had like a 30-inch snowstorm, and nobody had started to plow. And at the time, the city did the plowing. It wasn't done by private uh, companies. So the, the garbage trucks were then hooked up with plows, and they'd go out and start plowing. Well, of course, at that point, it became impossible to clear the streets. And I remember one snow plow tipped over uh, down the street from me and laid there for three weeks till somebody came along and could finally, you know, upright it and and you know get it back to work but anyway so we uh, the school playground i went to school number 12 which had a huge concrete playground uh, we couldn't go out and play at recess and it was really upsetting so somehow my teacher convinced the principal that the sandlot which across the street which is now filled with houses that time was the sandlot where we played you know baseball in the summer um uh 
had had piles of snow in it and it was open enough so that because the snow plows had tried to plow the streets and they had pushed all the snow up into the sandlot made kind of like a castle structure of piled up snow some places like a story and a half high and so she got permission for us to go play over there and, and during recess and of course what happened was we started to make you know divide up into teams and have a, have like snowball fights and over a p- period of days we we worked on this thing and, and made it into like forts and so we would we would take turns um having this struggle christmas trees and made roofs over it and and would stockpile snowballs and it was this was mostly third and fourth graders and what happened was the eighth graders finally caught on to this thing after school and one day we went there and they had taken over our fort and of course the third and fourth graders which had been the 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 combatants against each other suddenly decided that the eighth graders had to be taught a lesson so so uh, and this went on for several days we the day, you know we'd have to go home and then the next day we'd come back and the eighth graders would go into the fort because they had they were had been there the day before and we'd start the war all over again and so this one day um there were there must have been like 18 or 28th graders in in this huge piled up fort snow fort and another maybe 30 to 40 third and fourth graders because it was a fairly large school um trying to try and get the fort back and this this is a little bit crazy what happened what i did but i had seen this movie about medieval uh uh some film about medieval period and in which they were using catapults and catapulting fireballs into a into a castle so i decided this since we there were all these christmas trees up there this might be a really great idea to get the eighth graders out of there so there were birch little birch tree saplings on 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 a downhill slope from the fort and there were some shingles from a, a roofing job that was being done so somehow we fashioned a bunch of us fashioned a way to to turn one of these trees into a catapult we put this we put burning tar shingles on the catapult and strapped them up into the fort and it worked the first shot landed on the christmas trees all the christmas trees caught on fire we stormed up the hill and around this other building got all the fleeing eighth graders as they were running out of the fort and you know pulled down their pants filled up their their underpants with snow stole their shoes rubbed them into the ground because there were like four or five kids for every eighth grader and just had this uproarious thing Uh, and and it was going really well we were feeling like you know we were being victorious when we realized that there were flames shooting maybe 30 feet into the air from the christmas trees because there were huge the christmas trees that we had harvested because it was after christmas and everybody had thrown out their christmas trees right and so we could hear sirens coming you know sirens and police cars and so and i had been responsible because i had come up with this idea to use to make this catapult so i decided it might be a good idea for me to to leave <laughs> so while the in the middle of the whole thing i said to myself i think i'll just walk away and i'd better do it very calmly so i don't look like i was involved i didn't run so i i just simply walked away and i and i went home and, and you just I, got away with it 
And I got away with it. And the next day, the principal wanted to know, wanted somebody to come forward to say who had been responsible for this whole thing. Not one kid ever said who it was that had done, had come up with this idea and implemented it. So I got, I got away with it completely. Nobody got hurt. It's fortunate because people really could have. And there were houses nearby and they could, you know, the fire could have spread and it didn't. Uh, but I never got caught. The, no one ever got punished for it. No one got hurt. And the next day, they finally figured out a way to clear the playground. So we, so, and, and, to, and to take away the snow in, in, the, uh, in the sandlot across the street. So, and that, that, was the, that was the resolution to the whole thing. It kind of just kind of dwindled away with me breathe, breathing a sigh of relief. Because I thought I was going to be going to prisoners or prison or something. I want to make the point that though this book um, is about your childhood, it is definitely not a book for children, and it is a book for adults. And yeah. there yes. are very there are many funny incidents in the book, like the one you just recounted, and. Some of the book is very funny, but it's also, there are sad moments, there are ironic moments, there are sweet moments. It runs the gamut of emotions and that yeah. everyone has in their lives um, yes. to yeah. varying degrees. And it's really a, a beautifully written book. Tell us a little bit about your grandfather, uh, John. Well... It's really about it's really about he and my grandmother really. Um, he's a very in, enclosed kind of person. What happened? They had they were the ones that worked in the mills, and they had my grandmother started when she was twelve, but he started when he was fifteen. They when they were in their late teens, they got married, um, and they eventually wound up getting a mom and pop butcher shop grocery store in West Patterson, which is, you know, a neighboring uh, town. Um, and he basically spent the next 40 years of his life standing behind a butcher block, um, uh, you know, cutting up meat, not being really good with customers, not really wanting to deal with them, uh, which his wife had to do, and which she did, uh, because somebody had, somebody had to wait on the customers. He wouldn't do it. He was very grumpy about it. Um, but he he was like a lot of people whose lives, you know, we all think that somehow our lives are going to work out and something wonderful is going to take place, that somehow we're going to be rich or famous or successful and that we're going to have a satisfying life. And eventually he just got to the point where he realized he was going to be stuck in that job till the day he died. And he, it's true. That's he died basically still working in his own store. Uh, never making a lot of money, but just surviving. And um, at a certain point, it became apparent to my grandmother that he was he was cheating on her. That he was he was because uh, at those days, it's this is also a kind of funny little aside. People think it's so convenient going to supermarkets now, and maybe you do have a huge selection of product that you can choose from. But in those days. One of the things that really made their business successful was that people would call in and order for vegetables, canned goods, meats, and he'd put, he'd put the orders together, 
he and his wife would put those together. And then in the evening, he'd go around and deliver them to people's homes, drive up to their home, knock on the back door, bring the box or bags, whatever it was of, of, for the order into the house and put it on the kitchen table for people. Uh, so that was the kind of service that you're not, it's unheard of today. Um, but of course, what happened was some of, some of his customers were single women. And while I have no specific knowledge about who they were or how this occurred, at a certain point, when I was probably um, in my late teens, I became aware of the fact that that their marriage was really one of convenience, and that he was really he was really uh, cheating on her all the time. And his only other recreation was to hang out, hang out in uh, a place, uh, Timberman's Bar, uh, and and he'd go there and drink. And my grandmother, at a certain point, got tired of it and wouldn't go with them anymore. So she would sit home basically, and not have anything to do day after day after day. They were open seven days a week. Um, and he would, he would have somewhat of some freedom to go out and have these extra, extra marital relationships and, and uh, you know, meet with his drinking buddies at the bar. It was a very kind of, you know, not a very, you know, very common, I think, for a lot of people in that economic situation to have that kind of life. And it was it was interesting to realize that as I got older, that that was really the nature of their existence. Well, it's interesting. Um, in the book, you can feel that there is a frustration and loneliness uh, pervading the lives of many of the adults that you write about. And you write about your father having once been a musical prodigy and you never heard him play an instrument did you oh no not well a little bit when he became a fundamentalist christian seventh-day adventist that is um he he uh, would sometimes play his violin in in church during during service as a special musical event uh but he really didn't practice or ever really uh, uh you know, keep keep any kind of real ongoing interest and ability in in playing the violin. He had he had he evidently he was taking music lessons. His his parents had uh, hired someone, a music teacher, to teach him lessons, and um, he evidently was good enough so that uh, the music teacher said he really needs to to uh, to progress with his his disability and they he suggested that they send him back to holland send him to holland to to uh to study the violin and that was just before the depression and what happened of course the depression came and everybody in the family lost their jobs except for my father who was a stock clerk in a in a in a uh, store downtown in patterson and so at one point he was the he was the only one bringing in uh, a living working at 12, 20, uh, 12 cents an hour uh, working 12 hours a day often uh, six days and supporting how many people on that well of money? It, it would have been let's see uh, one two three four six seven people including himself eventually what happened was two of his brothers went out west 
to work uh, to work for the some of the programs that Roosevelt had had set up, you know, CCC camps and stuff, to to work in the parks and whatever. Uh, but uh, but initially it was seven people, and then it, it got down to five people. Yeah. So how did your experience with the adults, all of them who had varied agendas for you, how did that experience bring you ultimately to being an artist? It's a, it was a combination of my really um, crazy communist uncle, who I love dearly to this day, and, and the demands that other people who loved me too but um, it's, it's like what you start to understand is that people patch together their lives. I think most people patch together their lives and make it work on some level. And so their solutions then become what they think of as reality. And what I realized was that they, I had my, had my uncle, my, my communist uncle, who took me downtown to a restaurant at one point and said he had because he wanted to get away from everybody to talk to me. And, and I said, well, what's this about? And he said, I, you're a very talented in art and I want to send you to Russia to study art. And of course, <laughs> and it was like, you know, I'm 12 years old and it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but of, course, of course I loved him and I didn't want to, and I really respected him and I didn't want to let him know that I thought he was out of his mind, but that was one thing. Then I had this one uncle who had a safe full of money that he had gotten, let's say, in, in not the most ethical way. And he wanted me to take care of him when he got older because he had no children. And he opened the safe one day and and showed me this safe literally packed with stacks of thousand dollar bills and he took out a box of jewelry with a with a big ring with a big diamond on it and put it on my hand and said this will be yours whenever you want it and so he was asking me to do that then my grandparents made me swear on a bible their bible which they never went to church as far as i knew they said they were Baptist, and they didn't want me to become a Seventh-day Adventist, so they made me swear in the Bible that I would never join my father's church, which was like, this is really hard. And then, of course, my father, who yanks me out of public school at the end of seventh grade and sends me to a one-room Adventist school, and, and then to Adventist schools, which I, ha I never had any affinity for, and struggled for the next 10 years to extricate myself from it. Um, it may have worked for other people, but it didn't work for me. But what I started to become aware of is that everybody ha had this agenda or this, this kind of view of reality that was flawed, that it, none of these pieces could I get to work together. How can you get my uncle wants to send me to Russia and my, and my uncle with a safe full of uh, $1,000 bills? How can you get those kind of realities to come together? So eventually what started to happen in my mind was like, they're all partially crazy. They're all partially well-intended, but they're they're all partially just interested in their own their own script. And it wasn't a script that made any sense to me. And so it started with my uncle Phil's encouragement to be concerned about thinking, to to make me question and to doubt things, and and it, it eventually led me 
into that role of becoming an artist, which I did become. Um, and one of the things, in order to be an artist, and this also dovetails into writing for me, is that contemporary art is not about, I mean, I'm talking about real contemporary art, is not about making pretty pictures. It's really about asking questions. Asking questions about life, asking questions about the, the role of government or whatever it is. Um, and that asking questions was not to, to um, find answers, but to find better questions. And so that's what I started to realize, that all this, this disparate views of reality and manufactured realities of all the adults in my family um, allowed me to be not only introspective, but to, to realize the process of asking questions and not just accepting things the way someone had pre-digested and wanted me to conform to. Um, and, and an interesting thing that I've come to realize about writing is that what I learned to do as an artist, and I was very involved in the avant art scene in New York City for quite a few years, doing uh, conceptual art and performance art and, and installation art. What I learned from that was that it was the same process for writing for me. How so? Well, it's hard for, I don't think most people have an, uh, an understanding of how, how art uh, making it really occurs today. Or, or, you know, I'm talking about when people are involved in very contemporary forms of art. I'm not talking about landscape painting of like, right. a, you know, uh, I'm talking about outgrowth from abstract expressionism uh, up into performance art that some of the stuff that I was doing that you don't have you don't you don't have a fixed goal you're not trying to make a likeness of some image what you're doing is you're exploring a situation so whether you're making abstract art and actually the better name for abstract art is not non-representational or non-objective art because abstraction means to take something that's recognizable and distill a certain certain recognizable essence out of it. But with, with um, but with with contemporary art, you're you're asking questions without the intent of of coming up with a final answer. But so it's constantly evolving and constantly a process of discovery, and that was what I found helped me the most with doing my writing and it still is somehow the storyline if such is it if it if it is that evolves out of the experience of doing it not knowing where it's going and it's and I, what i realized it's really what life is like you know as i've said to people life is not about a beginning a middle and an end it's just a process you know and you know like my grandfather whose life was you know it was about survival, and, and, and this is my mother's father, the butcher, who, you know, how did his life end? He was he was on his way to the bathroom and had a heart attack and died. You know, that's not a storyline ending, and most of our lives aren't storyline endings. And life really isn't a story. We, we like stories, we like to make stories, and we like to tell stories, and it's nice to have them get resolved into an ending, but life really isn't like that. 
And I found the process of making art that doesn't have a specific ending in mind or goal in mind allows for a much, much more broad and free reign of discovery. And for me, that's what making art is about. And that's what writing is about. It's like a constant ending, endless discovering. I'm, I'm going to be 80 in a couple of weeks. And I, you know, I'm so happy I don't have all the answers or that I don't care to have all the answers or want an answer. It's that process of discovery that's so wonderful. And that I think I got from my art and, and to whatever degree it's successful, it's in the writing that I do. It's a wonderful thing that you decided to write these stories down. And again, I want to make a, the, um, the point that this is, this is the first in a trilogy. So you are incredibly prolific and written about your life in a way that is just charming and touching and funny. And in conclusion, Jerry, would you read the, from the coda of the book? Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah here, here's the coda. It starts off with a quote. A man needs a little madness, otherwise he will never cut the rope and be free. And that's from Zorba the Greek, the movie. And then begins my thoughts for the coda. We are all born perfect. I do believe this to be so. Even at an early age, don't ask me how early I knew this was true. Have you ever, in the fullness of adulthood, looked at a newborn infant and said to yourself, Oh yeah, born in sin. We may be born ignorant and trusting as a marsupial pup, but please, not in sin. More likely confusion, which may even grow with passing years. Life is a jigsaw puzzle with no sharp finished edges that can and usually does expand in unexpected directions with no warning. There are these three basic things I have come to believe about our jigsaw human condition, that we are occasionally sentient beings, that we are, as Lily Tomlin says, in this together all alone, and that we have the ability to be introspective, but only if we're truthful. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Jerry.